We're reading this morning 1 Timothy chapter 6, verses 1 and 2. 1 Timothy 6, 1 and 2. It says, Let all who are under yoke as bondservants regard their own masters as worthy of all honor, so that the name of God and the teaching may not be reviled. Those who have believing masters must not be disrespectful on the ground that they are brothers. Rather, they must serve all the better, since those who benefit by their good service are believers and beloved. Amen. May God honor the reading of his word. You may be seated, and uh, let's open up by praying together. Uh, Father God, I ask for your help this morning. Lord, when it comes to something as evil and fallen as slavery, Father, it is easy to say too much, just as much as it is easy to say too little. So, Father, I ask for your grace. And, Lord, more importantly, I even ask, Lord, that you'll help us to break our hearts for application of the word. We pray this in your son's name. Amen. I asked God for grace in preaching the sermon. I asked for your grace. Slavery is a touchy topic, and I can guarantee you I'm not going to be able to say everything there is to say about slavery or about racism. And uh, so let's just handle this graciously together, knowing that this is a very touchy and sensitive topic, especially in our day and age. Um, The word slave is rightly saturated with awkwardness, pain, and sorrow. It's a dark stain on the tapestry of human history. Some people have responded in our modern context by completely ignoring slavery altogether, believing that it's a thing of the past. Others have wrongly believed that it was ultimately a misunderstanding and that's been all but fixed in our day and age. Still others think about slavery and completely despair, believing that it's an irreparable part of human of humanity, an irreparable part of our society. Now, granted, here's, here's something you should know about slavery. It is in all forms, at all times, throughout all generations of history, a product of the fall, and it leaves our history as humans with the stench of brokenness. It's something that is to be mourned and to be saddened by. But fortunately, the Bible teaches us how to see things as depraved as slavery. It teaches us how to neither be silent and ignorant of it, but also at the same time to not despair. It teaches us how to be filled with hope and longing for restoration through the gospel. The biblical writers teach us that the gospel has not come into an ideal picture-perfect, clean world. It has come into the messiness of humanity. And the gospel being as beautiful and as powerful as it is comes into our messiness, pierces our darkness, and transforms it from the inside out. The gospel comes to slaves in their slavery And it comes to slave masters even in their sins. And in the end, we're going to see how Jesus' blood is able to wipe away even the darkest stains of our brokenness. Now, 1 Timothy chapter 6, verses 1 through 2, has been the epicenter of great controversy over the years. Uh, On the one hand, slave owners of the 18th and 19th centuries misused this passage. I don't know if you know your history 
that well, but in the 18th and 19th centuries, the American South, people in Texas, people in this region were using this text as a weapon against things like abolition and the freedom of the slaves. Preachers and pastors used to stand up in pulpits much like this one and use this text to show why wanting and longing freedom for African slaves was sinful and against Paul. Then on the other hand, we have people today who approach this text and see that Paul must not have cared anything about oppressed people, must not have cared, have cared about anything about such horrible and broken things like slavery. Now, both views are ultimately wrong and get Paul wrong and misunderstand Paul altogether. They do not quite understand how the gospel addresses transforms and ultimately eliminates slavery from human existence. First, it helps to understand what we're talking about when Paul says slavery. When I say slavery, most of you immediately are going to go back to the 17th and 18th century plantations where you see African-American slaves being put into big groups and being beaten and running away. Ultimately, Paul is not talking to that context of slavery. He's talking the first century slavery, and it was a drastically different institution than what we know of it today. Now, that doesn't give us an excuse by any means, and it doesn't lighten slavery in any form. Instead, it should be humbling to see that some first century civilizations wouldn't have dared to do some of the things 18th century American South did. Is that humbling to you? Just to think that the things that we are, we're comfortable with and the things that we uh, have in our recent history are things that even Roman civilization would not have dared to think about on a mass scale of people. It should be humbling to see that by the time we get to 18th century slavery, we're looking at a completely depraved, godless, fallen, broken, mournful system. Paul's not talking to that slavery. I am certain that if Paul were to write specifically to the American South and to the slave trade and to its chattel system, that his language would have been unapologetically damning to us. We are to be shamed, not justifying. We are to be mournful, not trying to make excuses for our past, our recent past, our heritage even. So we should be repentant and make no mistake that God's wrath is against such evils. Second, even with these differences between first century slavery and 18th century slavery, I think the critique that Paul didn't care about slavery and didn't talk about it is over-exaggerated. And I think the people who say these things miss some of Paul's most important teachings. First, consider the fact that when Paul speaks, he speaks directly to slaves in this passage. In this day and age, that it was completely unheard of. Even in Roman times, slaves were seen as something as less than human. They were below women and children. They were seen as property. And so for Paul to speak directly to slaves and say, the word of God is for you, is him affirming that the gospel is for dignified People, even these slaves in Ephesus. He is elevating them up in dignity and honor by speaking to them. And as such, Paul, in his context, would have been seen as a radical. 
speaking to those who most people didn't bother to speak to. But it goes even further than that. If you go into the context of 1 Timothy as a whole, Paul, uh, Paul has already said in 1 Timothy 1 that the law was laid down against the ungodly, the unholy, the profane, the disobedient. Guess who's on the list? Enslavers. Enslavers. Those who kidnap people. Man-stealers is the word for it. Those who kidnap people, enslave them, and then sell them into slavery. And on the other side of the coin, those who buy these people as slaves. Paul is thinking about Exodus chapter 21 verse 16 that says that anyone who does that is worthy of death. Now, what would have Paul said to the 18th century slave traders? What would Paul have said to Americans of this day and age who think back on the 1800s and think that's not that big of a deal, we're past that? No, he'd say, listen, the law was laid down against such evils. It's condemning. It's a sin. It's broken. But then he goes even further. He says in both Galatians chapter 3 and 1 Corinthians 12 that in God's economy, there is neither slave nor free. There's no slavery in Christ's kingdom. And the society that most reflects what God wants for his kingdom is the society that is free from slaves. According to Paul, slaves are no longer subhuman, or in, in, they were never subhuman, but they are not to be seen as subhuman, but as to, to be seen as brothers and sisters, equal with us in the gospel of Jesus Christ. He tells Philemon, when he sends Onesimus back to him, to not receive him back as a bondservant, but better, as a brother. Why do I tell you all this? Because I don't think we can approach 1 Timothy 6 with all of its contextual, historical misuses without looking at the word like slave and actually delving that in, actually drinking that in and thinking about the brokenness of that. And to see that the gospel for all time has always been for the freedom of those in captivity. Jesus himself said he came To set the captive free. The very Savior that Paul served said that he came to set people free. So I just want to, I want to, in the deep American South, right here, and I'm not blaming you for the 1800s, obviously, because I would share in that blame. But I do want to challenge your ignorance and my ignorance of what, was, what it was like in the 1800s. I want you to understand that when, in, in, a, in a mixed culture, when some people hear slave, they hear it in a different contour, in a different context than you. Even in, in China, the idea of a slave is a different meaning to them than it is to us. We need to be sensitive and respectful and we need to be bringing the gospel and restoration and redemption and reconciliation to these things. So we have to be able to speak about the gospel even when we speak about something as depraved as slavery. My friends, slaves aren't set free because Abraham Lincoln said so. Slaves are set free because Christ is a Savior and the gospel naturally leads us to do that. No informed, mature Christian would ever 
see another human being, no matter what their ethnicity was, as subhuman, subpar, or as property. So Paul takes this awkward thing, slavery, and he says, I'm not going to ignore it. I'm not going to be politically correct about it. I'm going to infuse slavery with the gospel and help you to understand how the gospel transforms and eventually gets rid of slavery. I think we need to see that before we even get into 1 Timothy 6. Paul speaks to slaves, but Paul does not speak for slavery. Paul speaks to slaves, but he doesn't speak for slavery. In fact, if we listen carefully, we will hear a subtle, strong whisper in this text that's so often been used to advocate for slavery He's going to whisper and strongly bring uh, the slave masters, Christian slave masters, to see that slavery is to be done away with. And so I hope to get there uh, logically through this. Um, I hope some of you have your notes. We're going to start keeping an outline in the back. So before you come in, just grab a note, uh, a paper, and come in, and you'll be able to follow along from there. Um, When we look at 1 Timothy 6, I think the thrust of Paul's message is simply this. This is what he's saying to slaves. In no circumstance, even in the horribly oppressive system of slavery, in no circumstance is a Christian given license to sin. Can we agree on that point? No circumstance. Does God ever give us a license to sin? No, absolutely not. Not even in the worst case scenarios of society. Here's where we're going to get there. Um, Looking at verses 1 and 2, it says... Let all who are under a yoke as bondservants, uh, in that word in Greek can mean slaves, regard their own masters as worthy of all honor, so that the name of God and the teaching may not be reviled, so that those who have believing masters must not be disrespectful on the ground that they are brothers, rather they must serve all the better, since those who benefit by their good service are believers and beloved. Now Paul writes to problems in the church, and, and he often does so, as you, as you see in First Corinthians and First and Second Thessalonians, and he's doing so now. We've had this massive collision of good news and brokenness, of slavery and gospel. On the one side, the gospel says that slaves are free in Jesus Christ, that they are no longer slaves, but they are freedmen in the Lord. But then you've got this broken worldly society that says that slavery is good, it's helpful, we need to keep it, and there's this massive collision. What happens in that collision? Well, there's all sorts of questions. The, uh, I can imagine at this time when this gospel is fresh and new, Christian, sla- Christian slaves were beginning to ask, if I'm free in Christ, then do I really have to respect my master? If I've been freed in the Lord, then do I really need to continue serving them? Is it really my duty to continue being under them? And on the other side, I can imagine Christian slave masters. Remember, the gospel, some of us don't just immediately wake up and we're sanctified. I imagine there are Christian slave owners in this day and age that Paul is writing that are hearing this good news and wrestling with what does this mean for me and my slave owning? Are my slaves really equal with me in Christ? Are they so only in a spiritual sense or in every sense? How do I live in this new tension of seeing that I am probably wrong in what I'm doing and need to repent, but yet my entire wealth depends on this? It's a mass 
it's mass confusion at this point. How does the gospel inform this? And so when Paul's talking about slavery, he's talking to a very large group of people impacting both slave owners and slaves themselves. It's important to see that when he says, let all who are uh, under the yoke of slaves, he's not, he's not defining which slavery he's talking about. He's not, talking, he's not just saying, hey, those of you who are enslaved because you're in debt. He's not saying just those of you who are enslaved because you're war criminals. He's not, he's not qualifying it. He's saying all those who are in slavery, all those who are under the yoke, as slaves, I think what Paul wants, wants them to see right now is regardless of the form of their slavery, and as we're about to see here in a minute, regardless of what type of master they had, they were to not sin and honor the gospel. To not sin and honor the gospel. He says, Let all who are under the yoke of slaves regard their own masters as worthy of all honor. Now notice he doesn't say, Honor your believing masters. Honor your good masters. Honor your respectful masters. He says, honor your own masters as worthy of all honor. The point is, even if a Christian slave were to have a non-believing master, they should not use their freedom in Christ as a license to sin against that master, as a license to dishonor that master. They are to honor and prize their Christian freedom while at the same time giving honor and respect and not sin against their worldly masters. Now, this obviously brings a whole bunch of ethical and moral questions. When I've talked with people throughout this entire week, people have almost always responded back, what does it mean to honor, though? What does that mean? And what about uh, slaves that were abused by their masters? What about, uh, this question was even uh, brought to me this week. What about the Underground rail- Railroad? Was Harriet Tubman, for example, in sin because she was dishonoring her master by running away? Let's just define honor. Just because it's got such an important context in this passage and in our culture, honor just simply means not to sin. I don't think it's telling slaves who were being abused in the 1800s to not run away from their masters. I don't think it's saying anything about their underground railroad. That's not even in the scope of what Paul's talking about. He's talking about normal first century Roman slavery where most people are in there willingly because they have to pay off a debt. He's not looking forward into the days of Harriet Tubman. Again, if Paul had written in that context, I think he would have been a lot more blunt about what he thinks about our American South slavery. So, there has to be nuances. When he's saying, honor your masters, I think we've got to be careful to understand that. Even the word honor has its nuances. He's not telling them to willingly submit themselves over and over and over and over again to abusive slave masters. You realize how... If we do not allow for nuances in Scripture, how, uh, how uh, damaging that can be to people. Imagine if I took 1 Peter 3, for example. Here's what 1 Peter 3 says. Likewise, wives, be subject to your own husbands, so that even if some do not obey the word, they may be won without a word by the conduct of their wives when they see your respectful and pure conduct. Now imagine if I used that and I told a wife, hey... I know your husband's abusive. First Peter 3 says, submit to him anyway. Now, did I just misuse scripture? Well, absolutely. 
First Peter three is not talking anything about wives being in under submissive hus- uh, under abusive husbands. It's talking about a normal relationship here, normal man wife relationship. It's not looking forward into the future of hey, by the way, you abused women. I think Scripture would say something different to people who are under abusive situations. How I would use First Peter three in that situation is I would tell a woman who's abused, get out. Of the house. Don't stay with him right now. There needs to be separation. He needs counseling. He needs to prove repentance before you should ever be around him again. But don't steal his money on the way out. You see the difference? You see the difference? There has to be nuances. When scripture tells slaves to honor their masters... We should not, and, and I'm saying this because this is our culture, whether we, we, we have buried our head in the sand so long that we have forgotten some of the things our very ancestors used to say. I think it's helpful just to bring that out a bit and just to say, you know what, it doesn't mean that. He's simply saying, slaves, do not sin against your masters. Why? Why should they listen to him? Here's what he says. So that the name of God and the teaching may not be reviled. The word therefore reviled is blasphemed. He wants Christian slaves to honor their masters in such a way that the Christian masters will not dishonor God. Don't sin against your masters so they will not have an excuse to sin against God. That's all he's saying. Don't, don't give them a license for blasphemy. Be honorable, be respectful, be loving. Don't, uh, don't give oppressiveness for oppressiveness and sin for sin, but be like Christ here. Honor the master so they will not dishonor God. And then there's another side of the coin. What if they have a master that's a believing brother, a, be- a believing master? Now, anyone in the church... Could, could understand that Paul's over here telling there's no slave, no free, and this gospel's coming powerfully into a one-way collision with their society. And now slaves could be very easily saying, you know what, I don't have to listen to you anymore. Paul says, I'm free. You go fix your own drink. You go do your own things. I'm going to just completely break off any kind of honor or service to you. Now here's what Paul says to that. Those who have believing masters must not be disrespectful on the ground that they are brothers. Rather, they must serve all the better, since those who benefit by their good service are believers and beloved. It might be tempting for a Christian slave to take advantage of a Christian master. But Paul says, wait a second. If you want your master to understand the difference, now you are a brother, your slavery is no longer slavery but service. It's a loving act. He calls it an act of kindness. When you have a believing uh, slave master, serve him all the better because now he's a brother. Because he's a family member. He doesn't give them a license out of service. And I think you'll see Paul gives no one a license out of service. Free or slave. We're all committed to serve one another. We're all to be committed to love one another. We're all to be committed to uh, do good to one another. So even here with these slaves, he tells them, serve them all the better. They're your beloved. So according to Paul, now that's, that's just that text. 
Okay, I think it has real life application for us. According to this text, whether the master is a believer or a non-believer, the Christian slave in first century Rome must not use their slavery as a license to sin. Even in slavery, Christians must remain faithful to the gospel. Now just imagine if, if what happened in the 17th, 18th centuries happened to us today. And we're sitting here and we're doing church. And all of a sudden the doors burst forth with some kind of other nationality. And they come and they start dragging off your women and children and take them to another continent to work in the sugarcane fields and to work in the plantations and to be beaten and molested and abused and raped. Imagine if that were to happen. Paul would say still, under the worst case scenarios, we are not given a license to disown and discredit the gospel. I think that applies to all of us. Now, I, I shared this, and um, I know I'm from southeastern Oklahoma. Uh, in southeastern Oklahoma, racism still runs rampant. Uh, ideas about slavery are absolutely um, bizarre. I mean, just I mean, that whole idea of it, it was just a misunderstanding. Uh, that, that was views that some of my family had. And it wasn't until I truly understood the gospel and how God made men in his own image equal dignity, equal love, equal uh, uh, honor by God that they're made in his image. All men, not, not just whites, but all men, Chinese, Africans, Americans, we're all made in the image of God. And that the gospel is the great equalizer. Do you realize that? Slave, free, men and women, no one's better than another in God's economy because it's the great equalizer. It wasn't until I came to the gospel that my own heart, my own mind, began to change and challenge some of the things my own grandfather used to say. We mustn't think that this is in some dark corner away from us, that it's past. No, we still to this day have remnants of that. We still to this day can, can get to that logic. If humanity at one point in time can justify ethnic-based slavery using Scripture, denying the gospel, I think we need to understand we could do the same. The gospel is the great equalizer. It transforms things, even like slavery. Showing that it's against God and dishonoring to Him. Now, how do, how do we apply this message? Um, I was trying to think through applications, and uh, this week has been quite a good week uh, to think about this application. <clears throat> these, these applications, I've got three for you today. Number one, we should be broken over the world's brokenness. My friends, there's not much you can do to completely eradicate racism out of, out of humanity. You know who has to do that? God does. But you should be mourning it. You should be broken about it. And you should act and speak out when you can. I think several of us, we, we read these texts and we're completely unimpacted by it. And, and yet I think when we read things like, let all who are under the yoke as bondservants, let's just stop there and think, Wow. We live in such a fallen world that there are some that are slaves. 
Do we ever just read Scripture slowly enough to be impacted and mourn the fallen state of humanity that we have such things as slaves? I mean, I-35, we live less than, I don't know, five miles away from I-35. I-35 is a known traffic way for sex slaves. When I lived in Oklahoma City, we were often told that intersection between I-40 and I-35 was a place you didn't want to go because you'd see these big truckloads of people coming in. Who were those big truckloads of people? Why were they in the truck? Why were they half-naked? Why did some of them look like they had black eyes? Because they're being trafficked from all across the country, and that's where the intersections meet. You want to you want to ship prostitutes out all across the country, you go to Oklahoma City because you can go east, west, north, south, wherever you want to go. So you go to that intersection, decide where you want to take your slaves. Friends, that exists today. That's not a figment of our imagination. There is no use in us trying to pretend that slavery is not a reality. Even today, Dallas, Texas, I-35... All of those areas are known areas where slavery happens. What kind of argument is it to say, ah, slavery doesn't exist anymore? Ah, systemic racism doesn't exist anymore. You should assume it exists because it exists because sinful humanity exists. And how should you respond? Mourn, weep, act. But even more than that, hope. We mourn, but we do not mourn as those who have no hope. We mourn as those who hope for a world where our Savior will come back and free 18-year-old girls from their sex slavery and heal the wounds that 18th century slavery brought on this nation. We should hope and mourn and have this mingling of, of sadness and yet glory and knowing that Jesus is coming to end all these things. We read the papers and we read about racism. We read about things that happen. We think about these girls that have been kidnapped. There's, uh, back in the old days, they used to keep pictures of girls on milk cartons. How many times do you look at that and just mourn over the brokenness of humanity? In China, girls are prom- young girls are promised to, uh, give, to be given American citizenship if they just come along with this guy. And so they come with him and they ship him to America, ship her to America, but guess what? Not as a citizen, to be drawn around in a cattle trailer. My friends, do, do we hear those things and do we just stop and weep? That people are treated as less than people, and that exists in the world that we live in. Just a few miles away, that's happening on a daily basis, and that's people's reality. Now, we, we, we don't want that kind of brokenness. We don't want to think about that. But do you realize that the gospel, the, the, the darkness that the gospel sweetens is far more darker than you think? We think of the gospel as a little flashlight in a dark room. No, no, no. The gospel is a blazing light in the darkest abyss of hell. It reaches the far deepest 
darkest depravity of humanity, do we have that kind of longing for the gospel? That when we take the gospel to China, we are praying that people who are sold into slavery would would hear the gospel and find hope. That maybe we would reach some of those evil and depraved men who are doing those things with the gospel and see them transformed from the inside out and repentant. And we are callous people. Because I didn't do it, because it's not my fault, it didn't happen in my generation, it doesn't happen in my neighborhood, then it must not happen, and I shouldn't care about it. That's the kind of thing that we should be repentant of. Be broken over the brokenness and long for it to be redeemed. Second, we should never use our bad situations as an excuse to sin. If Paul says to slaves that they, can, they should not use their slavery as a license to sin against someone else. How much more does that apply to you and me? My friends, this week, I was sitting in a hot house uh, at 1 a.m. in the morning. It was 90 degrees in our house. Air conditioner completely broken. Now, it was nothing. It's nothing as bad as being in slavery, I'm sure. But I had every license to sin at that moment. I had every license to say whatever I wanted to say, act however I wanted to act. Because don't you know, my air conditioning is broken in Texas in the summertime. God surely understands. And yet I think when we read 1 Timothy 6, Paul says, wait a second. If slaves do not have the license to sin even in slavery, you don't have the license to say whatever you want when your AC is broken. You know how many times I've heard things like this in the counseling room? My boss is a jerk, so I stole money from the company. My husband or wife doesn't listen to me, so I cheated on them. Uh, Here's another one that that I I like. American politics are corrupt, so therefore I'm not going to pay my taxes. My friends, the Bible and the gospel never allows you to have a license to sin, no matter how bad or how difficult of a situation it may be. It doesn't matter how broken this world becomes. Even if you were the blunt of that brokenness, you do not have a license to sin. In fact, the opposite is true, and this is our third application. We should use our bad situations as an opportunity to love and serve others. Just as Jesus loved and served us on the cross. This is the beauty of the gospel. Jesus didn't come as a political leader. Jesus didn't come as a dignitary. He didn't come as an emperor. He came as a doulos. As a slave. And he willingly enslaved himself to a cross. So that we could be set free. Now imagine if Jesus would have said, you know what, I'm a slave. I'm the son of God and I'm a slave. I'm going to use this as a a way just to rant on people. We'd never be saved. But because Christ himself models how to use a bad situation, something as bad as a crucifixion on a Roman cross, something that was reserved not for citizens, not for dignified people, but for slaves. That's what Rome viewed crucifixion as, as worthy as, only, uh, as, as for only slaves and the worst of criminals. The Son of God, the King of Heaven, died 
as a slave on the cross so that you and I can be set free. That's the gospel for us. Now, if Jesus did it and shows us how to do it, then we should do it for others. Jesus used his bad situation to serve us. We should use our bad situations to serve our brothers. Again, uh, I had no, coming into this, I had no anticipations that this would be my finest sermon. In fact, I um, uh, knew myself that I would be leaving a lot out that needs to be said, and I'd say a lot that would offend some people. But my friends, here's what I think that we should walk out with with those three applications. Christ has come to penetrate your darkness wherever you may be. Use that to glorify God who steps into your brokenness and makes you whole. Let's pray. Father God, we just thank you for who you are. God, we thank you for uh, texts like 1 Timothy 6. God, we mourn that there even has to be a text like 1 Timothy 6. We mourn the fact that slavery is a, is a real thing, even to this day and age, even in ways that we don't even know, Lord, that there, is, there are walking slaves, living slaves all over the place, all over this globe. Father God, I pray that you will help us to honor you, to honor the gospel, even in the worst of situations. Father, I pray for Christians here today not to use their bad situations as a time to complain, as a time to sin against others, as a time to grumble, but rather as a time to pick up their cross like Jesus did and to serve others. God, we love you and we praise you and we long for the day that your son will return and end slavery completely. And that you'll heal the wounds that some of our forefathers uh, led us into. God, help us to repent of the ways that we perpetuate the world's brokenness. And help us to learn to live for the completeness that is in the gospel. We pray this in your son's name. Amen.